Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome to episode 17 of Offshoot with Christian Peterson. Christian is a seasoned commercial real estate entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in the institutional investment space. As a managing partner at Catalyst, allocating joint venture equity into the real estate development deals, and raising capital for the fund, he has a refined sense of what it means to be an impact investor. Catalyst pursues market equity returns while creating measurable impact within their investment communities. These dual mandates coexist, and one does not dilute the other. Christian's expertise comes blasting through in our conversation. Listen in as he covers being intentional about investing and making an investment, the polarizing response that impact investing gets from the marketplace and the community, his description of the generational challenges that have come to the real estate industry since 2019 in terms of COVID, supply chains, inflation, higher interest rates, higher OPEX, and soon enough, higher property taxes. The value of a good local development partner when allocating joint venture equity into development deals, and how Catalyst's impact scorecard allows them to objectively quantify social impact independently from their financial analysis. How Catalyst has successfully formulated and closed a fund with two classes of investors, one class that accepts a lower return in exchange for social impact, and another class that's market rate. And finally, Kristen's mindset as a fiduciary in both the short and long term. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Offsheet. Today, Christian Peterson, a managing partner at Catalyst Opportunity Funds, is joining us. I've known Christian for just a short period of time through introduction of a mutual friend, Peter Kleinberg. However, in much the same way a five-year-old can ascertain musical virtuosity as easily as a PhD in music, it didn't take long to realize that Christian's incredibly sharp and capable. He's also thoughtful about the impact his professional actions have on the broader community. And you need look no further than Catalyst, a double bottom line investment firm, to see evidence of this. Christian has a rich background in commercial real estate that spans over 20 years. Just before Catalyst, he spent 11 years at Fortress as a senior vice president, working on private equity and credit funds. While there, he led several investment initiatives, including securitization of over a billion dollars in middle market commercial real estate mortgages, and the management of over $3.5 billion in assets. Before joining Fortress, Christian worked as a director of consulting for a sustainability advisory firm, providing original best practices and decision support to portfolio managers at global real estate companies. He also worked as an advisor within a private real estate syndication firm, underwriting over $2 billion of commercial real estate acquisitions, assembling a due diligence team, and developing their processes to evaluate acquisition and development opportunities. Christian holds a BS from BYU and an MS in real estate from MIT. He also has some pretty unique credentials on blockchain and sustainability. Outside of the professional 
Christian is a skier, which he gets to do from his home in Sundance, Utah, and an avid outdoorsman. He's also a freak of an aerobic athlete. He was recently telling me of his resting pulse of 65 and an OSAT of 85 while he was hanging out at the 17,000-foot base camp of Everest. That's 100% not normal, as there's literally 50% less oxygen up there. Translation, don't think you're going to keep up with him on a bike ride. Christian, welcome to Offshoot. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. And uh, I'd reciprocate some of the uh, positive things you said about me, having skied with you a time or two, um, you're a force to be reckoned with yourself on the mountain as well as uh, <laughs> I know you, you know, your way around mountain bike trails. So I'm, I'm not sure I'd go head to head with you, but I uh, appreciate the generous. Uh, hey, maybe on the downhill, that's true, but I know you'd smoke me on the up. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. We'll have to put that to test this summer. There you go. Well, hey, to, to get us started, can you just tell me about um, Catalyst and maybe what, what does a double bottom line investment firm or an impact investor do? Yeah, no, I'd love to to share a little bit about our, our organization and, and what we do is we, we are we do feel like we are unique within the marketplace and in offering um, double bottom line investing without having any compromise or trade-off in the return profile that we seek. And as you mentioned, my my path to get here um, brought me through the private equity world and through Fortress Investment Group where um, I had a, a great career and, and learned um, a significant amount of commercial real estate really across the entire capital stack, uh, whether it was debt and structuring and organizing um, uh, debt security offerings through CLOs or whether I was working on the, the equity book, um, just had a, an array of experiences there. And Catalyst came to me somewhat um, in a traditional Utah kind of a way at the time I was living in, in Dallas, working for Fortress and was out here, as, as you mentioned, I'm an, an avid skier and was on one of my ski vacations out here with uh, friend of mine who is a large developer in the Salt Lake uh, region and we were having a bluebird uh, out today with uh, some fresh powder and he looks at me on the chairlift and says hey have you ever thought of uh, moving back to Utah and, and I thought what a day to ask me you know fresh snow on a clear day at Alta of course the only answer is yes and just as uh, you know life evolves and the way things happen it was maybe a day or two later where I got a text message from him and he was uh, wanting to connect me with one of my current partners, Jim Sorensen and my other partner, Jeremy Keel, who just so happened to have been launching a, a real estate fund and neither one of them had really come from a fund management uh, background. And so uh, very uh, uh, fortuitous that the three of us got connected and and started Catalyst now, uh, we're about our fourth year, hitting our fourth year mark at the end of this month. Um, Catalyst, uh, our tagline is we're a transformative real estate investment um, firm. It focuses on superior returns and, and made measurable impact. And we believe that those don't need to be mutually exclusive. Um, it, it's been an interesting journey to, to get us here. And how do you thread, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but how do you thread 
what measurable impact is and what does that look like in the context of a real estate project. Um, one thing that I, I probably never accounted for in, in my journey here when we had uh, formed an organization around capital doing good is just how polarizing even the idea of doing good with capital is and has become over the last several years. Um, you know, I think from a political perspective that we've gotten to the, the, the place in our own democracy where, where even the uh, doing good and impact investing can be a polarizing topic. Um, what does that look like? How do you how do you mean? I just want to drill down on that. Do, do you get you get negative reactions from people who hear that you're seeking returns and having impact? Yeah, we do, and I I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the marketplace around you know what it means to be an impact investor, and and it is distinctly different from uh, what we probably hear more more of in the news media around ESG investing or environmental, social, and governance investing. And um, they are related in some ways and distinctly different in others. And I think it's really the ESG element of it that has become so political and, and polarized over the last several years, um, really both from the, the right and the left. And um, there is, a I think, a misconception in the marketplace that when you're investing for good, that trade-off has to be made uh, for your other fiduciary responsibilities of, you know, generating market rate returns. And, and Catalyst really set out on a mission to prove to the marketplace that it doesn't have to be an either or. And in, in fact, often it's an and, and there is a, a virtuous cycle of when you are investing intentionally, there can be additionality that's added to your return um and it, it's not always um it's not always in the in the negative in the way that i think the news media tries to to paint it so on the on the uh let's just say die hard capitalist side um maybe there's an orientation that your value proposition is being diluted by you know including this social impact component and then on the naysayer side let's just call them the the anti-capitalist they just are completely skeptical about it and think you're if you will sort of greenwashing the whole thing yeah you know you nailed it those are those are the two opposing views that uh, we often find ourselves in the crosshair of and 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 i'd like to to say obviously from a biased fund manager perspective but over the last four years i I think we have proven out that it isn't an either or, and you can be a capitalist while doing good. Um, and certainly my partner, Jim Sorensen, over his career has um, made that his, his mantra and has really spoken not only nationally, but all over the world on this concept of impact investing and, and how, it, how, there isn't a, how there is not a trade-off hmm. with return. What about the opportunity set? Does it? I, I would imagine it has to change, right? Like the things that you guys would look at uh, as an unfettered, if you will, um, opportunity fund would include, let's just say, the entire universe of real estate. Well, you probably would fence it in and get into certain product types and geographies, but um, you're putting another layer over it. So how does that change the opportunity set for you guys? 
Yeah, and it's a really good question that I think uh, you know we you know we have to to grapple with um, as we look at new funds and, and new fund strategies that we put out there, and it really centers around the idea of um, what is doing good. And I think you could make an argument, and you you hear arguments made, and I'm not going to um, you know uh, attack anybody's viewpoint on on what is doing good, but on the one side of the scale, uh, you could take the most liberal view and say, building a hotel is an impactful project because you're creating, you know, jobs kind of all across the economic sector, you know, whether it's service jobs or professional jobs, and therefore it's an economic uh, development for that community. And that, that certainly is a viewpoint that somebody can take. We tend to be more, um, programmatic about how we define what good is. And we do this um, through a proprietary impact scorecard that we've developed that really categorically puts, um, you know, to a quantitative scale uh, where we see an impact being made within a traditional commercial real estate project. And those uh, categories that we have um, really fall into kind of five key areas. Um, we look at things like housing affordability and we'll, we'll take a project and as we do a financial underwriting, we'll do an impact underwriting. And one of the metrics we might look at there is how many units of this particular project are delivering to the missing middle or the workforce housing, which is somebody who's earning somewhere between 60 and 100% of the area median income. We'll look at in a second category uh, revitalization. You know, what is this project doing for a distressed neighborhood? Is it bringing in, um, you know, new economic development? Is it, and is that economic development being done in an inclusive way that's that's including the community um, that it's being built in? Um, we look at access to services, um, and and these are things that uh, I think most of us uh, listening to the podcast probably take. Um, advantage of in our in our own daily lives, but in a lot of our communities across the country, things such as access to healthy grocery, you know, healthy food options through grocery stores or medical services by having a you know urgent care clinic in the um, community. These are things we'll refer to as as food deserts or medical deserts, and there are large swaths of our population where have been underserved in these very basic necessities of that I think many of us take for granted. And then we'll look at things like environmental sustainability. Um, every project we do, we, we try to hold to the highest um, degree of an environmental sustainability that we can, whether it's through water conservation or energy conservation. And then the, the fifth category that sort of overlays on everything is, is diversity and inclusion. And I think uh, as many of us know, and I, I think as is well understood by those both inside and outside the industry. The commercial real estate um, sector is not very diverse, whether you're looking at people of color or, um, you know, women-owned owned firms. And so we we try to uh, address that in everything that we do. And I think we take a lot of pride in the projects that we've uh, done to date. Over 60% of our uh, partners are um, come from a diverse background. And when we take that whole scope of those five key areas, we translate that into what we call our impact scorecard. 
and we score a project in each one of those and there's baseline kind of impact profiles that we need to achieve uh, in order for us to move forward for that kind of second bottom line piece of it. So it, it has to make sense from a market rate perspective on a return profile, and then it has to make sense from a um, an underwriting on an impact uh, profile as well. Hmm. And you guys, you know, you've had considerable success. I, I, I think you've shared with me um, in the past kind of the size of fund one. And I think you're, you're rounding out fund two. Um, this message that you just shared, uh, is a little bit nuanced and I can imagine speaking to LP investors who might be handing over discretion to you guys that, um, well, let me ask it this way. How is that message received? I think that message has been received, um, very well. We've been, uh, we champion ourselves as, or we think of ourselves as champions of, uh, of this message of, of being more intentional about the investments that we're making. And for our particular firm doing that within the context of, of real estate. And we really have kind of two investor classes. Um, if you want to think about them that way, um, one is a group of investors that probably weights the impact nature of the projects that we're doing. And so they're um, investing with us because we are developing in communities of color, because we are bringing services into underserved areas. And then we've got a group of investors that may be a little bit more agnostic towards the impact investing, but are investing because they like the markets that we're in and they like the return profile that the project is um, generating. And they're, uh, preference for the impact may be secondary um, to what it is on the return. And, and this is really, I think, an outcome of the balance that we've always been trying to strike at Catalyst, that we are a market rate, you know, non-concessionary fund that is trying to um, deliver an impact. And I think it might help to paint, um, just to put a little bit more context and definition around it, to paint a picture of what one of these projects looks like that um, uh, we think is a a good yeah, showpiece. That'd for be that. great. And so one of our first investments in the in the fund one, and and we close that fund out at a uh, at around two hundred and fifty million, and and really did the bulk of that raise in the middle of the pandemic, you know, while sitting in our attics, uh, which was uh, an interesting place to to launch a new fund, uh, working from home. But one of the first uh, investments that we made out of that fund was in a project in Tacoma, Washington with a um, female-led development firm. And she had really spent uh, the last several years and, and had track record of delivering workforce housing, you know, in that 80% of, of AMI range with, without having to take any LIHTC or, or other, you know, federal government subsidy. And um, through her efforts, we, she was able to um, obtain a, a TIF from the state of Washington it, that uh, helped uh, abate some of the real estate taxes over a, a period of time in, a, in exchange for delivering it for the state of Washington. The requirement is 20% of those units at 80% of AMI. And put this project in a distressed community in the hilltop neighborhood of Tacoma. And at delivery, we were actually able to lease those units at about 70% of AMI um, and had about a, 
160 units, we, uh, because of the acute need for housing meeting that level of income demographic, the first month alone, we received over and executed over 80 leases and had 50 move-ins and were able to basically fully lease that building within about a two and a half month period. So it really proved out to us, if you go back to those kind of five pillars of impact, that we were addressing a, a housing need in the greater Seattle area. And then on the ground floor space, and this is where I think, you know, what we bring is a, is a new way of thinking to um, a very traditional model of commercial real estate, instead of, you know, building a um, business center that would likely never get used or, or lightly get used at best, is we held back about 3,000 feet of ground floor space for community services. And we went and approached the um, city of Tacoma, who had a co-op co grocer that was looking for space in the neighborhood. This is in one of those food deserts that I identified earlier where um, people living in this neighborhood have historically had no access to healthy food. So we, we, we leased about half of the space to them. And then the other half of the space, we were approached by a credit union based out of the Seattle area with a strong credit rating behind them that came to us and said, you know, have, there's things such as financial deserts, just like we have food deserts and medical deserts, where there is a significant portion of our population that doesn't have bank accounts, that, you know, has never had a debit card, that doesn't understand, you know, financial has, you know, low financial literacy. And so they signed a, you know, long-term credit lease at two times what our underwritten rent was in the, in the project to bring in banking services to a community that had been underbanked. And so we look at that if, against those five pillars, you know, we were able to, to address most of those through housing affordability, bringing access to services, you know, doing it through a diverse sponsor and doing it in a historically underinvested and distressed neighborhood. And we've had tremendous success in, in doing that. And that's pretty emblematic of the projects that we looked um, and that we have done in, in our portfolio. And so is that, I'm listening to what you're saying, and I don't remember what the, the old phrase was for the banks and banking where they would, is it redline a neighborhood? Redlining. Yeah. yeah redlining. So, so, you know, we would say, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say 92101 because it's downtown San Diego. Yeah. Look, we're not making any residential mortgage loans in 92101, which in your, you know, sort of comments of food deserts and financial deserts, the reason that was outlawed is because it was kind of a reinforcing behavior. As soon as the, the capital was pulled out of that market and imploded. I'm, I'm wondering if what you're explaining is kind of this radical idea or at the same time also incredibly obvious, right? Like there hasn't been anything perhaps brought into markets like this. You guys come with a new source of capital and, you know, surprise, surprise, like the market responds. It, it just seems like it kind of, it's not obvious because nobody, there are parts of towns and even towns in their totality that capital steers away from. Uh, I just wonder what your comments might be on that. Cause it kind of strikes me as both like very 
progressive and insightful and and you're you're a bit of a renegade to do it and then at the same time when you explain the result you get it seems perhaps a little bit obvious that you would get that kind of a result of 80 80 units a month or on a 150 unit project i mean okay then nothing's been delivered in how long of course there's been up demand yeah yeah there is um i do think what you see across our our urban fabric nationally is um, a byproduct of redlining. Um, and in addition to that, we find this particularly in, in areas in the Southeast of where, you know, infrastructure was used as its own form of redlining, where mm. freeways were intentionally, you know, put through on a north-south access through Nashville and in an effort to basically create physical barrier from historically African-American neighborhoods from, from the, you know, the white neighborhoods on the other side, downtown adjacency. And we've encountered this a lot, whether we're doing this in Nashville, whether we're doing it in Winston-Salem, you know, to some degree, this happened in even places in the North, like Minneapolis. And I think there is a little bit of, of shift in mindset when you go into neighborhoods like this. And um, I'd be probably remiss to say that you know, it, 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 it wasn't easy going in the first time into a neighborhood like this, but I'll share another example, uh, which is in uh, Minneapolis in a neighborhood there called the Seward neighborhood, which is historically has been an immigrant neighborhood. It's currently dominated by um, a Somali population. And we had an opportunity in our fund one to look at a project that had uh, been in the planning and development phase for several years and they were um, had put together some tax increment financing they had had gotten some some grants from the state and the county and had put together a capital stack and were were short on the majority of the equity and they had a hard time sourcing the equity and they came to us um, and said hey would you would you look at this project and so we went out there this was a neighborhood that had not seen a market rate development in over 40 years and it's hard to contextualize that that in almost four decades and almost an entire generation you had not had a new new project built that wasn't you know done under section 8 housing and we had to get comfortable that in that neighborhood there were community members who would stay in the neighborhood or who might move into the neighborhood if there were quality housing there. And this particular neighborhood was one stop away on the light rail from downtown Minneapolis. Um, you know, we, we liked the, it was adjacent to the Hiawatha Trail. It had a lot of good fundamental real estate characteristics, but for sitting in a neighborhood that had been underdeveloped and underinvested in. And, and we, did our, we did our diligence and we take everything through a, a rigorous institutional due diligence process, which, you know, comes from my team's collective experience at places like Fortress or Goldman or, or CIM. And, you know, we came to the conclusion that we could get comfortable with, um, you know, the, the potential renter base there. So again, we built about 140 units uh, in this neighborhood. And we leased that project up in about four months. Uh, it really no compromise and, and actually at a higher rent uh, than what we had originally underwritten and and did this in the middle of November in um, Minneapolis, which is not a 
you know, not your ideal time to be delivering a new project. And what was really, I think, helped prove out our thesis is over 50% of our resident population are Somali. And these are Somali families who had no quality housing in the neighborhood. And as, as they moved up the income scale and could afford better housing, what, what would traditionally happen is they would leave the neighborhood and basically leave the neighborhood and uh, in a lower socioeconomic way. And we were able to retain them in the neighborhood, retain the, um, you know, those families who, who wanted to stay and, and live in the community that they were in. And I think, you know, that really helped us understand that um, you really have to do your due diligence. And there are, you know, there is a, a, renter, a renter base. And I, I think a lot of traditional private capital groups, you know, that may not be the project for them because they may not get comfortable with, um, you know, or, or maybe wanting to do the, the legwork to really understand where those renters are going to come from. Yeah. And what does that legwork look like? I mean, how do you, how do you start with, Hey, nobody's done anything for 40 years in here and maybe we should do our homework and see if there's a good investment here. I mean, it'd be pretty easy. Well, look, I'll tell you my experience of capital is with very few exceptions. Um, well, I don't want to overstate this. There is oftentimes a reluctance to do the hard work of thinking about something that's not what has been done before. So how do you approach something like that and go, right, so how are we going to figure out if there's an opportunity here? Yeah, um, I, and I think this kind of comes back to our, our DNA of, of being you know, community investors um, you know, as part of our tagline is there, there has to be, you've got to have a, a good, strong local sponsor. And, and I, you know, from Catalyst perspective, we're LP capital providing equity to local developers in ground up development of primarily workforce housing and, and in some cases addressing some of those service holes that we talked about. So it really starts with us by having, uh, you know, an, an underwritable sponsor. And these are groups that traditionally have track record. They're well regarded in their community. We did another project in North Minneapolis, which I think had a, a very similar dynamic to South Minneapolis, where we're one of the first projects in that neighborhood in, in several decades. And our, our sponsor in that neighborhood is a pillar of the community in that neighborhood. And he understands what the needs are of that community. He understands where the demand's gonna come from. We look for additional capital that's been going into the neighborhood, whether that's through, you know, a, a nearby hospital system. Uh, you know, maybe that hospital system's undergoing an expansion. There has to be a demand driver, you know, just like any other fundamental real estate underwriting that you would do. Um, so it's having a good sponsor. It's understanding the um, demand dynamics in the neighborhood. And then I think the third and and maybe equally or more critical piece is just engagement in that community. And so when you have a good sponsor, they're in, they're fully engaged in the community that they're in. And we have a, a project that uh, we just uh, wrote a, a term sheet on in uh, the Winston-Salem market. I like this example as kind of a best-in-class uh, developer who's really in, engaged with the community. And so in, in this particular project, 
in order to help understand the needs and the demand. And this is in one of those traditionally redlined districts where the freeway bifurcated the, the traditional African-American neighborhood. And, and here we have you know, a diverse sponsor who's built a coalition with the local um, health system in the Winston-Salem area, who's gone out to about a half a dozen other local groups to really understand where their needs were for housing. And these are groups like the school district or the community health uh, hospital that's adjacent or the fire and police. And, and that's really core to what we're delivering in that workforce housing. And he's built out a model that basically shows um, this pinup demand by understanding the needs of this various group. And I, that's one way where we can look at one of these neighborhoods and before we go into it, really understand is the demand going to be there? And I, I think as we've proven out in uh, several of our projects now that um, this model does work and it does require um, maybe a new way of thinking as a um, capital provider. Uh, but um, we see these communities that have been underinvested and you can make money in those communities. You just have to be smart about how you do it. Yeah, I love it. I, to be honest, I didn't realize there was so much texture to what you guys do. I mean, we've had some conversations around it, but you're you're definitely explaining um, with more rigor kind of how nuanced the opportunity set it is and how you go about um, finding it, underwriting and securing it. Um, if we go to just kind of today in the business, what's happening with you guys and what are you seeing? What What challenges are you facing? Yeah, I, I've jokingly um, deemed this era of commercial real estate that we're in as we're living through kind of the seven plagues right now. And I, I start that with uh, the pandemic displacement that we had and the pandemic displacement of residential tenants, of commercial tenants, and uh, is really my plague number one, which, which fed into, and I, I think everybody's going to be licking their own wounds on many of these points, but, but fed into the supply chain issues. And we we started this fund uh, six months before the pandemic had hit and had to... Uh, Perfect as I timing. Earlier, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, don't follow my career in timing because I, you know, I came out of graduate school in 2008 or 2009, you know, launched my, my first fund in six months before the pandemic, came out of my undergraduate basically in the com crisis. So Perfect. anytime I make a major life move within my career should be an, an early indicator for the rest of the industry to watch out. So, <laughs> um, and, and this one was, this one was unique and, you know, whether it was the pandemic displacement or supply chain issues that were a result of that, you know, leading into kind of the third plague of, of high inflation that um, we've all been dealing with now for years. And, and now, you know, entering this phase of, of higher interest rates, um, kind of the, the fourth wave coming at us, the, the fifth one being higher uh, OPEX expenses, you know, particularly across our, our multifamily assets and, and, you know, acutely within insurance, you know, which is really part of this feedback loop that we've been living in because we, you know, we had supply chain issues and higher costs. Now we've got higher uh, insurance because the insurance companies have to underwrite 
higher replacement costs, and maybe they're they're seeing additional risk because of some of the things that we've experienced in the last several years. And I think we're entering a phase now in a in a six plague, and this one will um, has a a lag effect to it, and that's that you know I anticipate seeing significantly higher real estate taxes, whether that's driven by some of the you know significant increase that we've had in rents in some of our markets and multifamily projects, or or one that I think that doesn't get talked about within our urban core that we're watching very closely, and that's as you leave, uh, as the office sector, you know, largely pulls back from downtown, um, you're going to lose a significant of your tax base in a lot of these urban cores. And that tax hole has got to be plugged by something. And I think what that something is, is probably the multifamily that's come in in the last several years and, you know, this kind of regentrification of, of downtown. And so I, I don't know that we're fully out of the, the, you know, this feedback loop. And I, you know, I don't know what the seventh plague is. I'm sure there's, there's, <laughs> there's something out there, but, um, and it's required us to be, to be innovative. Um, you know, launching a business in 2019 and having to live through this, um, you know, these are, these are issues that are generational issues. And I think anybody who's been in the business the last four or five years have been having to deal with, generational issues in succession. And it, it's required us to be uh, constantly innovating. And I think um, our second fund is really a byproduct and an example of how we're trying to, to innovate and to remain not only uh, true to our mission of delivering market rate uh, double bottom line returns through, through impact investing, um, but but also you know having to maintain that market uh, return profile and um, and so maybe if I have just a minute if I could uh, explain what we're doing in our second fund because yeah, I think it addresses of your question about how we're doing uh, you know how we've had to innovate so you know going back to the beginning of the podcast one of the kind of five pillars of um, you know addressing social impact that that I think uh, we uh, have almost permeating throughout our entire book is really this idea of workforce housing. And um, anybody in the housing sector, I think it's, it's well understood that uh, the federal government has had a, you know, decades long program now within uh, LIHTC or low income housing tax credit that has been inefficient, you know, in terms of its, its tax efficiency in delivering uh, housing to the population that's making between 60 to call it 80% of the area median income. And it's, it's never enough. And so I don't want to um, pretend that it's a sufficient amount of, of housing, but there is a delivery mechanism there for that income demographic. And I think we're all well aware that market rate housing, you know, to the income population that's making 100 to 120% of the area median income has its own efficient delivery method. That's, that's I think, what general uh, multifamily housing development will do. But there's this, this kind of cumulative housing gap that according to the last uh, um, study done by the National Association of Realtors in 2021 was at 5.5 million um, housing units short across the country. 
And that, because of these pressures that we've had from higher cost, higher now borrowing cost, and has slowed down the delivery and has priced many people out of housing, that housing gap now has grown to about 6.8 million. And when you look at who is that group of 6.8 million that doesn't have housing, the bulk of that group is this income demographic between 80 and 120% of AMI. And that particular segment of the population is really the backbone of our community. That's the police officers and the teachers and, and the nurses. And while there are very good housing preservation funds out there that basically buy Class B product and maintain that within the, the overall housing supply, there really has not been um, many innovative approaches to creating new housing for that income demographic and really addressing the supply shortage. And what we've done is we've looked at that problem and, and through most of the, call it 20 deals, uh, development projects that we have going right now um, are addressing some form of that housing. But as the, as the pressures of borrowing and as the pressures of um, higher cost and construction materials um, have really put pressures on the model of delivering in that 80 to 120 percent even with having some public subsidy whether it was a tiff or abatement or or other programs and so when we've had to address this problem we looked at it we said there's there's still work to be done on the equity side and so when we went back to our investor base we found that we really had um, two different classes of investors. We had, as I mentioned earlier, a class of investors that was driven more by the impact profile of the project, but still needed to make positive return. And then we had the class of investor, which is your traditional real estate investor that wanted to see a market rate return profile. And so when we, when we took the problem of delivery of, workforce housing and the pressures, and we looked at our own portfolio and our own investor profile, we, we came back to the drawing board and said, if we created a fund structure that basically blended down the overall cost of capital that's needed for these projects in order to unlock more of, of that project at an affordable price point, that we could do that through a fund structure. And so we've in our second fund offering, we have two classes of investors, a class A investor, which is a traditional market rate investor, and a class B investor, which is a lower yielding, generally more institutional investor that will take a, um, a reduced spread relative to the market in order to deliver you know, those workforce housing units. And when we run this through our, our fund structure, we are now able with out any compromise of return to our class A investor and without any compromise of return to um, our developer partners, but taking that return difference between the A and the B class and putting that back into making these projects more affordable, that we have a, a structure now where we can take most traditional market rate projects and create 50% plus of those units being at an 80% um, AMI. And that's uh, really the focus of our second fund is focusing on that, that uh, supply delivery of workforce housing and doing it through capital stack innovation 
at the fund manager level at the at the asset level or the pro forma associated with the asset does that translate into accepting a lower cap on cost or a lower spread between you know the pro forma terminal cap rate um and your cap on cost terminal cap rate remains unchanged as, right you know most of this will probably most of these rents will probably get marked to market but by bifurcating out the return profile from the project level down to the class a and class b there's no impact on the um, class a return the overall uh you know irr of the project is blended down lower but when you split that blend down between our a and our b the a the class a investor is still getting what they would expect in a target you know multifamily return from any other the class b investor is basically absorbing the difference of that um, return in order to enhance the affordability of the project. And, and we have now, um, you know, field tested this on, on projects and have built a, a core investor base around this. And, and it was really listening to what the needs of our investors were and taking the needs of those investors and applying that to projects to solve a problem while, you know, still, still maintaining an underwritable deal. And, and it, it was a journey to get there, but you know, we think that this really could unlock a lot of opportunity in building workforce housing. And, and we have a, because we are headquartered here in the Intermountain West and much of this housing affordability is, is probably disproportionately hit many of these communities in the Intermountain West and, and West Coast. Um, you know, a lot of the focus of our fund capital will be in, you know, delivering these 80% of AMI projects within the Intermountain West and, and West Coast region. It, I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's super innovative. I haven't heard anybody trying to, to do it, but my world is, you know, sort of asset level. You're, you're running the fund. So let's go with the geographic, you know, thing you had mentioned previously where there's a freeway separating the good part of town from the bad part of town. We got, two 100 unit projects that are identical and for the sake of making this simple the rents are the same right useful fiction uh one of them is targeting you know say 80 percent of the units or sorry uh some large percentage to be 80 percent ami the other one is market rate um actually it's even better to say it the same they're both doing the same rents and and they're both uh you know, say building to a five seven five cap on cost. If Catalyst comes over to the, you know, mission driven side of the freeway and uh, brings this structure, is it is it probable, possible, even relevant that instead of both of them having to build to that five seven five cap on cost, that the mission driven one might be able to underwrite to a five five because the cost of the equity capital is marginally less and therefore. Uh, either you could drop rents or you could absorb more construction costs in pursuit of putting product into that marketplace in order to get deals done. Am I thinking about it the right level, the right way at sort of the asset level? You are. Yeah. You are thinking of it at the, um, contextually in the right way. And, and there are, as, as you know, on the finance side of the business that you're on is there are favorable debt financing, um, available, when you are addressing that level of affordability and whether it's through regional banks, we have one here in Salt Lake that 
at that level of affordability will um, give us more favorable DSCR coverage in exchange for delivering that affordability. Um, they'll also give us um, slightly higher proceeds, maybe relative to a quote on a market rate deal. It's made us more attractive to Fannie and Freddie. Um, you know, it prioritizes us in 221D4 HUD applications. And so we think that, you know, not only is there um, benefit and, and potentially some lower cost of capital on the equity side, but we're also seeing some more favorable terms on the debt capital side, which allows us to be um, equally competitive. Mm -hmm. We also think it's a much stickier renter pool. Um, we think there's, you know, knock on effects and lease up velocity. We've seen this across our portfolio. You know, the example that I gave in the greater Seattle area of the velocity we had, I think we had a, a good product in a good location, but I also think a lot of that velocity was driven by just this absolute dearth of available product within that um, AMI price point. So, so net net, when you factor in, um, you know, both the the economic direct benefits and maybe some of these indirect uh, knock-on effects, um, we think it's a very defensible thesis to have. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I want to be mindful of your time. We discussed that at the outset here. Um, and, and I kind of want to transition towards a little bit of the personal stuff. I love everything you've been sharing. Um, what has been your experience of, of starting Catalyst? You've talked to it, but you know, what are some of the takeaways, some of the things you might share um, for the listener just in terms of, you know, if you had known, maybe I wouldn't have done this or things to avoid yeah. or, you know, any of that. I, I think, um, you know, in the business that we're in as being fiduciaries and we take that um, very seriously and in terms of the way we approach and, and manage the business. I like to think of myself as um, a short-term optimist and a long-term pessimist. So I need to be um, conservative in my views uh, in the long-term and maybe how things are, are gonna turn out. Um, but in the short-term, I need to be optimistic. And we've had plenty of challenges thrown our way um, as I mentioned, launching in the pandemic. And, you know, it's, it was daunting to have left a, a, a fairly uh, good position at a, at a, you know, large institution like I was at and to six months later be, um, you know, in the middle of our capital raise. I don't, I don't know that we had raised maybe 25 million um, when the pandemic hit. And, you know, there was a moment where a decision had to be made and that was, we were either going to press on and know that um, we were going to be successful and do whatever it took to, to get there. Uh, or we could have said timing wasn't right and we're going to, you know, fold and go our different way. And I think our, our thesis, I think our mission resonated. I think it resonated um, even louder during the pandemic when a lot of these issues about, you know, disproportionate uh, health effects of, uh, COVID was having in these, you know, underserved communities that, that didn't have access to services, you know, core to the mission that we have, or, you know, the, the housing uh, shortage that I think um, we, we were all experiencing uh, coming out of the pandemic. And, and by really sticking true to our thesis and, and, and being a daily optimist, 
um, got us through some very challenging times in a, a very challenging uh, environment to be an entrepreneur. And we're still faced with that today. I, our, our second fund, uh, we're having good success. We're going to have our first uh, close in the next 60 days um, because I think our, our housing uh, mission uh, resonates. And I think our, our innovation in our uh, capital stack that we're doing at the fund level resonates and it addresses a, a problem that, that didn't go away just because we're, we're faced with these other macroeconomic challenges. And, and so, you know, having started this business in 2019 and having all these challenges thrown at us, um, you know, I think has made us a better organization because we've, we've really had to, to, to innovate. We've really had to um, uh, uh, take, take these on with a positive attitude. Well, you've articulated a lot of um, objective data-driven processes to assess what you were explaining as impact. I'm curious if you reflect back on, sounds like there was a moment or maybe several where it was like, hey, is this, is this right time, right place? Or, or should we just like hang this up? Um, what was the blend of kind of data-driven analytics that supported the decision to stick it out versus um, you know, sort of emotion and, and grit? Yeah. It, I mean, I think just as a, you know, as an entrepreneur problem identification and then finding solutions for that problem. And I think the, the one data point that, um, you know, keeps coming back to us is, and I, you know, I probably, we'll come back to the, the housing pillar because that's really where the focus of our current fund is, is this housing shortage isn't going to go away. And um, I think there's, it, it's one of the largest generational challenges that we're going to be faced with is our, you know, so, socioeconomic split in such a way that, you know, our rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the middle class is continuing to get squeezed. And so long as we have, a product that's addressing that problem, whether it was, you know, through our first fund, which took advantage of the opportunity zone legislation, whether it's the second fund that is innovating uh, in a way within our own fund structure, when when you've got a solution to a problem, um, which we believe that we have, I think that's really the drive that. Uh, that keeps us in the business. And I, mm -hmm. and I think it's resonating with the capital markets. And I think that's a good uh, indicator that, that what we have is uh, what the market needs at this time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, look, sh sh continuing on kind of the personal side, uh, my question to you, I mean, we've rescheduled this probably three or four times because you guys are, you know, going 60 miles an hour plus um, sounds like long days and, you know, very, very driven organization. I also know you've got three kids and a wife, um, you know, the, the little league kind of, uh, extracurricular activities that percolate with that just on the personal level. How do you, how do you like wrap your arms around, um, those competing mandates? You've clearly got the professional pretty well dialed and you've got a high level domain expertise that may or may not cross over to the home life, but it seems like from my perspective, you, you do a pretty good job, but I wonder how you think about, you know, your personal life and, and this, which clearly could just consume you. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think one that many of us um, probably struggle with. And I, I try to distill it down um, to its simplest solution uh, where I think it's carried me through whether it was, you know, demanding positions before Catalyst or, or starting a business and in the environment that we're in. And I think it, it boils down to just being present, you know, being present at home uh, for those little league games, for, you know, your spouse when, when they need it, um, being present at the business when, uh, when the business needs it. And it's always, it's always out there. It's, it's a 24 hour, um, you know, uh, uh, job when you're, when you're a, a small business owner. Um, but, the thing that I I think has remained consistent in a true north for me has has always be present and that that's easier said than done at times but it does sometimes mean making some trade offs and those trade offs generally I think come in personal time and so you know I may leave work early so I can be present at my my son's baseball game um, and that trade off may mean that I'm having to work later that night um, uh, and that. That's how I've managed that. And I, I think it's equal on the work front as well is, um, you know, you need to be there. Uh, and, and as you get older and mature in your career, I think you get better at um, doing the, uh, the triage of, of uh, you know, where you're, where you're most valuable and when. And, and that's how I try to, to balance all those different uh, areas of, of my life. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, if you will, the, the, the end of the day kind of notion, like how, how do you kick up your feet, find relief and, and, uh, recharge as Kobe says, sharpen the saw. <laughs> yeah. And for me, and I, I, I think this, uh, is personality driven, but, um, for some people, I think kicking up their feet is the recharge for me. <clears throat> it's generally being outside. You know, and, and yeah. that is going to entail a level of activity. So my recharge is, you know, tearing down a mountain on a, a pair of skis or, you know, out trail running or, or on a bike. And, and I think maybe it's a, a fortunate um, personal characteristic that my recharge and, and, and exercise can align so they're not competing with each other. Um, but, but recharge for me, I, I'm not one that sits well on a, on a beach with a, a drink in hand. <laughs> totally. Um, I just have a question cause you guys are Salt Lake and you know, Salt Lake is, is clearly a, a major MSA. Um, but it also has all of those lifestyle amenities that you're alluding to. Just curious, like is, is the home base of Salt Lake a, a net negative, net positive, or a non-factor when you're out in the capital markets, um, talking to people? Yeah, I, um, by and large, it's been a net positive factor. And, um, and there's a, a couple of reasons for that. But Salt Lake uh, has been by, you know, virtually every economic indicator, uh, whether it be unemployment or, or GDP growth or, you know, diversity of the economy. Um, you know, there's, there's many accolades, I think, for the, the metro area that, has made it an attractive place and we were out doing our initial fundraising we do have um, a good footprint and a significant footprint here in salt lake within our fund um, that has been by and large a positive factor 
because th there are not a lot of institutional capital managers in the Intermountain West region. And so groups that are looking for exposure in a market like Salt Lake or, or Boise or, um, you know, or, or any of these other high growth um, Intermountain West communities, uh, there, there are vehicles, but there's not a lot of vehicles for them to get access to that. And I think it's been um, a sig significant part of our success. Hmm, that's cool. Um, we're coming up on time. So I think I'll just give you the mic. Anything you want to share uh, with the audience, be they the entrepreneur, the developer, the, the guy who's trying to get capital formation underway and maybe is a first time fund manager or maybe somebody who's just right in the middle of, you know, a hard asset and a, or a hard fund that's turning sideways because of interest rates. I don't know any, any sort of last thoughts. And, um, certainly if you want to leave any, um, digital, any sort of contact points for catalyst, obviously Google will, will probably cover that, but, uh, I'll give you the floor and then we can wrap it up. Yeah, I would, uh, I would say to anyone out there, it, you know, we've talked about the macroeconomic challenge that we've had. You know, we've we've had challenges at the asset level. It's just part of being in the commercial real estate business. It's been part of my career for the last 25 years. And um, you know, whether they're their asset level, macroeconomic level, um, we're always trying to problem solve. And I think what's helped me over the course of my career, and particularly as we've been starting Catalyst is it's easy to panic. And, you know, now is not the time to, to panic. And, and generally is never the time to panic. Um, there are solutions to most problems. And I think um, you, if you go into it with the understanding that um, you're gonna have challenges and those challenges are gonna need to be um, solved, whether it was uh, like we talked about a few minutes ago, the, the pandemic, it would have been easy and, and probably a rational decision to have, you know, stopped our fundraising efforts and to said, let's go do something else. Or as, you know, costs were, were going out of control on many of our projects. I think, you know, we, we could have panicked or, you know, we're having an issue with one of our um, office buildings now where we've lost major tenants, but, um, I think maintaining a level head uh, is going to serve anybody well, particularly in the times that we are in now. And that's that's easier said than done. Um, but you know, having done this now for for a number of years, um, level heads generally prevail. Um, the sun does shine tomorrow, although it doesn't always feel like it. And uh, you know, just remain true to your principles. And I think. Uh, you'll find you'll find yourself that most of these problems will work out in the long run yeah good advice um christian thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me i appreciate it uh listeners thanks for listening through the the entire pod if you uh my my crew always tells me to remind you if you can put a review up on whatever your platform is that's always welcome and uh thanks again christian much appreciated thank you